Hey y'all, it's Kemeny. And it's Christina from Truth Table. And you all have been asking us ways that you can actually partner and support Truth Table. And we have now created a Patreon. Hey, this is the deal. We need your help. We need your resources to make this happen. Go on over to patreon.com slash truthstable and partner with this work. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McCamini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, sisters. How y'all doing? I am doing well today. How are you, Akemini? I'm doing well, you know. Um, the winter <laughs> is, you know, still upon us, but, you know, I'm making it. You so. know, <laughs> there is this thing called global warning. I know that some of the saints don't want to believe that, but... I have concerns. Yes. <laughs> I have yes. concerns. Thanks. Uh, our, our saints from other mothers don't want to come on. That. Come Let's be please. Clear. Come on, y'all. Come on. Can we, can we get the oil and, and laying on hands right about now? Please. Help us, God. I'm Help I'm us, concerned. Lord. But anyway, all that to say is I'm done with the winter. How about that? <laughs> right. I'm over it. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm always done yeah, with it. Um, but yes, I I did say I did say sisters, but it is me and C, and y'all know that means that we have an interview upon us. And uh, today it's our uh, behind the book episode. Woo-hoo-hoo. All right. So we need like a little like page turning like sound effect. I'm trying to do that right no, now. No, no, oh, no. No, we'll working, we'll but... insert it right here. Yes. <laughs> That was me trying to do my little bootleg sound effect right now. So, but yes, we have a behind the book uh, uh, episode. And the book that we are trying to get behind is The Color of Compromise by our dear friend, Jamar Tisby. All right now. Hey, hey Jamar. Oh, my goodness. I'm at the table. This is infiltration <laughs> by invitation thank That's you right. so much That's there right. you go That's right. <laughs> yes 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 we thought our listeners would want to hear from you our dear brother um Demar is a good 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 friend of ours a good friend of the table and so we were like you dropped a book your first book first of many i'm sure and we were like you have to come to the table and talk to us about it so before we get into the nitty gritty of the book. Uh, why don't I tell y'all a little bit about our friend? Yeah, go ahead. And, go ahead. And just so, so y'all know just how important he go is. Ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Jamar Tisby is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective where he writes about race, religion, politics, and culture. He is also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. Woohoo. Uh, he has been, uh, he has spoken nationwide at conferences and is and is writing and has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and CNN. He is studying for a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi with a focus on race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. Welcome to the table, Jamar. Thank you so much for having me, sisters. Uh, Learned so much from you all, so it's an honor to be here. Oh, oh, and we learn a great deal from you. So I just, I mean, my first question um, just about the book is, the title. The title is Flames. Mm. Okay. And so I just love The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. Talk to us about how you came up with the title. 
it was a long process. So this book, uh, my first choice was for it to be called The Fierce Urgency of Now. Mm -hmm. And that is, mm -hmm. uh, we'll probably talk about it later as we talk about practical solutions, but it's a, a quote from MLK's mm -hmm. I Have a Dream speech. And the idea behind sure. it is like action. We need to do something about racism <laughs> right now because would, it's already been be very 400 years. Right. So um, that that that's where we first were. But uh, I'm glad we landed where we did with the color of compromise. Um, so I opened mm -hmm. the book with a story, uh, the tragic story of the murder of four black girls at the 16th Street yes. uh, Church, Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, act of racial mm -hmm. terrorism. And then in, in the days after it, a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. stands up in front of an all white male business club. And he he says, who did it? Who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? And then he goes on to say, the answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us mm. is condemned for that crime and the bombing before it and a decade ago, we all did it. And I thought Morgan's speech just concisely captured the idea of complicity and compromise because it's not that everyone physically threw the bomb that killed uh, the four little girls. It was that they had been complicit in fostering a culture of compromise that led to that bomb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways throughout history, it's not that Christians in the U.S. were these foaming at the mouth racists. There were plenty of those, but um, it wasn't always the case that every Christian was, you know, hurling the N-word or burn, bur burning crosses or clapping at lynchings. But it was the case that many, many, many times when they had opportunities to confront racism and all the ways it showed up in everyday mundane ways uh, through jokes, through talking, through policies, and they failed to confront it, it created this culture of complicity that leads to the most heinous acts of, of racial terrorism uh, as, as we know it. Mm. So I wanted to get at that idea and, and say that, you know, when we should have been practicing courageous Christianity, we were compl practicing complicit Christianity and the time for that is long past and we need to move forward. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very, very helpful. And it, it makes sense why you, uh, thought through that original title, kind of your own, maybe, uh, personal title in your own mind as you wrote the book. That's right. So it, 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 I was uh, struck by beginning the book in many ways, honoring the four little girls who were killed in the 16th yeah. Street bombing. And um, and in some ways, by centering those stories and those voices, as I read it, to me, it was a nod also to center the voices of Black women, um, yeah. who in many cases take um, the unrecognized hits of uh, mm -hmm. kind of the mm -hmm. anti-racism work. And so... I, I just want to quickly center Black women for a moment here. And I'm curious, Jamar, as you begin to study um, and to research for this book, what what bits of information, what stories, particularly related to Black women, struck you um, that maybe you hadn't known before or inspired you or, or left you shocked that it was kind of left from the kind of the uh, the known historical record of, of injustices in America? Mm. Some of the most exciting work historians are doing right now is centering the stories of black women. And so even in my coursework for the Ph.D., you're coming across more and more works that emphasize the critical role of women. I think of uh, Barbara Ransby, Ransby's book on Ella Baker <laughs> as, a, as a wonderful example. One of the ones that I include in the book is, is the story of Reese Taylor, who uh, underwent a, a tragic and traumatic gang rape at the hands of yes. white men. 
And it strikes at the idea that racism is gendered. And so although it was the case that black men, women, and children were lynched, oftentimes there was a particular form of racial terrorism, rape, that was enacted on black women. And Danielle Mm -hmm. McGuire in her book, At the Dark End of the Street, really lays out very strongly a case that uh, the the struggle for black women's rights, in fact, fueled and and in some ways even motivated the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s because the investigator that the NAACP sent to uh, look into Reese Taylor's story was a woman named Rosa Parks. Right. And yep. <laughs> so she's mm-hmm. you know Rosa Parks is another great example where you know history and popular fiction remembers her as this little old lady who one day was tired and decided not to move on this bus. <laughs> She had a lifetime of activism. Um, she she was well trained. Mm-hmm. This was not something new to her, mm-hmm. and so uh, her refusing to move seats on the bus was actually part of a much longer history and pattern of her fighting mm-hmm. for women's rights and Black women's rights in particular. So we do need to elevate those stories of resistance because Black women have always been at the center of the Black freedom struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. When we get into further into the book, you start to really unpack what I think is the conversation that we have to have about racism in America, which is race itself, that mm-hmm. that race, uh, the purpose of race is racism. Like we can't. <laughs> so um, you talk about the social construction of race and and I think of it just as a political a political constructed entity, but talk a little bit about the history of the development of the concept of race and what that means for maybe America today. 400 years on from 1619, when the first 20 and odd Negroes were were brought on a ship to the coast of colonial Virginia, and that's marked widely as the beginning of what became race-based chattel slavery. Now in 2019, looking back, it seems like it was inevitable. It seems like slavery, racism, white supremacy was the only route. But one of the things that the academic study of history teaches is this idea of contingency, that there were Mm. particular actors and circumstances and uh, they made particular decisions. And and if that's the case, then they could have made other decisions. And so in the colonial era, the 17th and 18th centuries, race and and ideas of racial hierarchy weren't set in stone. They were still being codified. You didn't have um, as established a system of white supremacy as as we now know and and so it's the idea that that race had to be made it had to be constructed and it was through deliberate actions such as the uh, 1667 in the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, passed a law saying that baptism did not free enslaved Africans, Native Americans, or mixed race people. And so that's that's a that's a that's race, religion, and politics all mixing in this single decision. But it helped to codify what we now know as race-based chattel slavery. And then there are other decisions, whether it's Plessy v. Ferguson or the opposition to Brown v. Board. All of these things tend to become embedded mm. in laws, policies, plus the informal practices that that began to develop, particularly after the Civil War, when folks are trying to recreate white supremacy in. Um, in a in a in a in a nation that no longer legally sanctions uh, the enslavement of people of African descent, and so all of that means that race had to be made. But on the flip side, in a sense, it means race can be unmade 
It means that the decisions that deliberately disenfranchised people of color, we can make different decisions. And mm. so I, I, I hope that it is an encouragement for people to get in the fight or to continue fighting, uh, because mm -hmm. these things are not, um, you know, divinely ordained by biology or the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, we can change and do better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you for breaking that down too for our listeners. And so I, you know, as I was reading the book, I was actually wondering um, what, well, I am your friend, so, but, but still, <laughs> so, <laughs> taking that out, I was thinking, you know, what, what, I was wondering what precipitated, what are the events that, that made you say, you know what, this book needs to be written <laughs> right now by me and written for this time, you know? So what were the, the, the events that like pre precipitated, you know, the, the color of compromise. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. brought you to this point where you're mm -hmm. like, I have to write this book? It was the interweave, interweaving of at least three different factors, theology, history, and, and experience. So on the mm. theological end, like these, these things are clear that God created all people in God's image and likeness, and that mm -hmm. simply by being the human beings, we have inherent dignity and worth, which should speak volumes to the way we treat one another across racial, ethnic, cultural, gender, economic lines, right? Sure. So from Genesis to Revelation and this beautiful picture in Revelation where God pulls back the curtain of eternity and talks about in Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9, this vision of, of people of every tribe and nation and tongue coming together to worship around the throne. It's clear that 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 the gospel is meant for all kinds of people and so mm -hmm. i believe that <laughs> and uh yeah. I, I i want to say and do things that that indicate my faith in in god's vision for the church and then mm -hmm. there's also the historical aspect uh so as I'm reading literally hundreds of books on U.S. history, the church mm -hmm. keeps coming up. Mm -hmm. And typically <laughs> when Christians are mentioned in the historical record uh, around issues of race, it's, it's, it's usually not very positive. It's not very good. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The churches and the Christian leaders who are in power were often white. They often were the, the promulgators and the perpetuators. Mm -hmm of a racial hierarchy. And many times we were on the wrong side of racial justice as, mm -hmm. as a church. So I was reading this and, and, and not only that, not only seeing the role of Christians, but seeing the, the actual physical lived reality of racism. Mm -hmm. Like this is not a game. Mm -hmm. Um, reading story after story of lynchings and rapes and stealing like like one of the things that really stuck out to me in researching this book is the material aspect of racism where mm -hmm. people like during reconstruction uh recently freed people of african descent were starting to make headway they were they were owning their own property they were running for office they were starting schools and hospitals yes. and that was stolen right from under them yes uh through a series of political and social decisions and so that even the little advancement that we were able to make which was against all odds and circumstances could be ripped away through one vote or one person and uh, that was heartbreaking because you start to see this glimmer of hope and then, right. you know, darkness descends again in terms of the hopes of black people. Mm -hmm. So I was actually disturbed by that. And, you know, misery loves company in a sense. I'm like, I am not going to be burdened by this all by myself. So <laughs> other people need to read this. 
And then <laughs> share my burden. You know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like y'all you need know, to know. The Bible y'all says need that. to know. Um, and then the last part was personal experience, with which y'all know even better than I do. Um, but it was things like Ferguson and the rise of of Black Lives Matter to national prominence, and seeing particularly how white evangelicals responded with so mm-hmm, much callousness, sure. uh, just a lack of empathy, and this very myopic view of race and justice, mm-hmm. which. Uh, which bifurcated social justice and the gospel in, in, in I think some very unhelpful ways. Um, and then I think the, the, the nail in the coffin for me was the 2016 election and sort of the 81% mm-hmm. and this yeah. staunch support yeah. of people who identify as both white and born again for a president who is the antithesis in mm-hmm. words and actions of many of the things that we're supposed to represent as followers of Christ. So all of those things combined said, I need to get this off of my chest and onto the page. Mm. All those things. Wow. Mm. Thank you. Very helpful. You know, I, so you have contemporary movements that are responding to systemic racism um, right now. Right. And you mm-hmm. have had these sure. movements throughout history. Right. So, uh, Black folks specifically, and even and, and even white folks who were convicted around the injustice of, of racism, have not been silent for hundreds of years. You've always had these people who have spoken up and risked life and limb um, to do that, which is right, or to make things right. And I was curious for if you could speak to the contemporary generation now about what wisdom you have learned in studying the historical narrative that they might want to still hold on to. And I say that because I think there's a gen- there's a generational beef, mm. at least when I hear, um, as a generation Xer, I, for me, I feel like I hear all these different generational beefs that are present. Um, and mm. yeah, and, and I, I feel like we're missing some lessons along the way that might help us <laughs> in the journey. So I'm curious yeah. if you can if you can lift up yeah. a couple of those lessons. Racism um, has been remixed in many ways, but the 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 wicked root of it is still the same. And so I'm wondering if there are some historical lessons that you're like, we can't lose a hold of this because that actually was working. Great, mm. great question. Yeah. Um, we are certainly in the midst of another phase of the civil rights movement. And so it would behoove all of us who would like to be considered activists or anti-racist to learn from the past. And one of the lessons is that people of faith have always been integral to the struggle for black freedom. So as I study at a university, I interact often with undergraduates. And there seems to be the the spirit on campus and among many college-age students that you can either be a faithful Christian or you can be a social activist. But those two mm-hmm. don't really go together. So mm-hmm. join the campus ministry group or I can join like mm-hmm. the NAACP or, or the local chapter of Black Lives Matter. But those lives will never really intersect. And I want to say, well, that's not been the case historically, especially Mm -hmm. black folk. So um, obviously you can look very far back. You can look at like folks like uh, Richard Allen and and Absalom Jones, who helped form the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. You can look at folks like uh, 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 Mm. Denmark D.C. and Nat Turner and uh, Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and Martin Luther mm-hmm. King and, and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and so many people. And they were not just Christians. They, did, they weren't just activists who happened to be Christians. They were Christian activists uh, whose faith actually motivated their, uh, their resistance to, to, to racism, slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. And so as we look at the historical record, we see the indispensable role of 
people of faith, uh, both through the institutional church and just as individual Christians. So we ought not, and, and as believers, dare not let go how our faith motivates our, our struggle for justice. That's one lesson. Mm-hmm. The other lesson would be uh, we need to study the tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, right. it, it stands out to me. We did an interview on Pass the Mic with Bree Newsom, who's the, the mm-hmm. young black woman, mm-hmm. climbed up the flagpole, took down the right. Confederate flag from the state house in South Carolina, got right. arrested right. for mm-hmm. it, but made this beautiful statement, right? And yes. she's sort of frozen in time in that moment. And there's a lot more to her. She's an artist. She's a lifelong activist, all of these things. But mm-hmm. she was talking about that particular event. And she said, days, hours, planning went mm-hmm. into that. And 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 even before mm-hmm. that specific act, she was already a student of right. the movement. And so when mm-hmm. that, that act occurred, they had a, a, a camera set up to record it. She had the words that she wanted to say, which she said in yes. the name of God, this Psalm flag comes down. Psalm 27, I believe too. You know, mm-hmm. she, uh, she had yeah. her people there. She had bail money set up. And one of her admonitions to the current generation of activists was, was, do your homework, study and train. And, uh, you know, Rosa Parks is another example. She went to the Highlander Folk School, which is this renowned uh, training ground for mm-hmm. civil rights activists that anybody who's who you've ever heard of, they probably went through that training. And so the idea that we can just be mad about something and, and hit the streets is ahistorical and probably unproductive at the end of the day. We need to do our homework. Mm, mm, that's good. And, and I'm wondering, Jamar, um, I actually have a couple of questions, but I'm wondering, do you, uh, in, you know, as a historian, you know, we know that history, we live history, right? It's a present reality and it repeats, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if you think there's, that this will come in the age of secularization. Do you think that that, that historical, um, um, uh, how can I say, um, momentum that was, that was motivated by faith, right? Among, you know, our, the elders that have gone before us, do you think that that can return um do you do you see that in our present time will that will that return do you think it will just in your historical thinking cap yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i'm also asking you i guess <laughs> you know i'm also asking you to i guess you know fourth tail too here yeah you know do you see that there is a possibility for that those two worlds to come back together um in essence so i think we could make the case that um the movement never was without faithful witnesses in terms of believers. Mm-hmm. And we look at something like the the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, and it's very apparent that it was a church-led, church-based movement because many of the most prominent leaders were actually pastors. Uh, many of the most important speeches occurred at churches. A lot of the organizing yes. happened in and through churches. And there were some very specific historical reasons for that. It's because institutionally, mm-hmm. Black people didn't have a lot of other centers of power. In fact, the church was probably the most powerful Mm -hmm. uh, voluntary community organization uh, among Mm -hmm. Black people. And so partly as a result of the civil rights movement, we actually have access to different venues for organizing, um, whether it's online via social media, whether it's through other civic organizations and institutions. And so in that sense, the Black church as an institution in my view, isn't as centrally located as as in ages past. But that doesn't mean 
that Christians are no longer part of the movement. So in, the way I've been thinking about it is less looking at the institutional church or particular congregations involved in and leading the movement for Black freedom, but more on an individual basis. And so I mentioned Bree Newsom before, who is outspoken about her faith. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who uh, founded the Equal Justice Initiative and works to to exonerate uh, uh, wrongly accused people on death row. He's an outspoken person of faith. The Poor People's mm -hmm. Campaign, which is a, mm -hmm. a reviving of the movement that, that King was leading uh, yes. in, in the lap, latter part of his life, that is led by uh, Reverend William Barber and, and Reverend mm -hmm. Liz Theo Harris. So these are all people of faith who are leading movements and are outspoken. They're not hiding their their Christian faith. And, and in fact, they say this is this is what motivates and, and shapes their activism. And so I would look not at maybe institutional manifestations of Christianity, but look for the individuals within the movement who are still professing Christians and see that as vital in terms of their role in, in public ministry. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it really does speak to the power of, um, Very helpful. you know, letting our light shine wherever we are and, and having some That's vocational right. diversity that believers are called to be mm -hmm. in every sector of society, um, not to take it over, but to season it as salt, right? <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. it, 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 it's amazing to see where, when and how we can be effective, particularly if mm -hmm. we put ourselves in the position of humility in those in those spaces, right? And not to kind of hog it up. I, I'm 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 struck by uh, in the book you give a shout out to one of our buddies who's usually at the table that's Michelle Higgins, um, and you yeah. you talk about the 2015 um, Urbana uh, speech, mm -hmm. and when I think about that I often I often also think about um, Tom Skinner's 1970 Urbana speech, and when I think about the just the duplication through history of people kind of echoing the same call of like notice this church care about this church, resist this sin of racism church. That to me was a clear echo from Skinner to Higgins at Urbana, this kind of event, evangelical um, uh, space, this, this, this location. But I'm wondering if, they have, if you've seen some duplicate events uh, throughout the historical narrative of other voices making the same call, but like 25, 30, 40 years mm. apart. Right. Very perceptive of you to notice that. Um, actually working mm. on that as part of my dissertation research. Nice. But what what history <laughs> help a blow. What, what history... Come on, Holy Ghost. Please help me. <laughs> Lord help me. Um, what history teaches us is that black empowerment is the antithesis of white supremacy. So the most threatening to mm. white supremacy mm -hmm. is a free black person. Uh, because white supremacy absolutely works to oppose black freedom in all its forms. And so whenever you see black people yep. self-consciously oh, yeah. resisting uh, racism and white supremacy and doing so as unapologetically black people whose minds and spirits are free, no matter what state their physical bodies may be in, in terms of bondage, that is always going to have echoes down throughout history. And so I mentioned mm -hmm. before Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner, who were leading slave rebellions. And as a result, they, they both mm -hmm. failed um, due to the violence of white supremacy. But as a result, it's very telling the way white people, including white Christians, crack down on black communities, particularly communities of faith, congregations. And so uh, there's always going to yeah. be this swift and equal and opposite mm -hmm. reaction uh, to whenever 
black people attempt to assert their full freedom and equality. You can see this again in the 20th century, in the mid 60s, on up through the 70s with the black power movement. And even that language, black power, was absolutely terrifying to mm. people who wanted to to promote white supremacy, whether in its more most egregious violent forms like Ku Klux Klan violence, or in its more more genteel forms like like the White Citizens Council sure. in uh, Mississippi and elsewhere. Um, whenever you get black people asserting their own dignity in a way that says, I'm not going to wait for white approval and I'm not going to measure my language or my actions to accommodate the comfortability of white people, that's when you get the swift and oftentimes violent reaction of white supremacy trying to take back control because the last thing white supremacy and whiteness wants is black people to be empowered. Mm, yeah, and it also reminds me of um, after the 2016 election <laughs> um, when uh, Van Jones, you know, rightly said, yeah. um, uh, you know, that, that we experienced, it was a white lash, right? That we experienced when um, um, 45 was elected right up, right after Obama. So yeah, you're, you're right about that, my brother. And so I, and on that mm. same note, I'm thinking about, you know, just of course the violence, you know, of, of white supremacy and the fact that there are levels to it, right? There's a genteel, you know, That's approach. Right. And then there's some very outright heinous acts um, that are committed in the name of whiteness right and power hoarding and power grabbing um and hoarding that over um over our people and of course um non-black people of color as well um and so there was one excerpt in your book which i'm going to give a warning right now that it's, it is graphic um but it really i mean it's it it, it struck me and it stuck with me for a quite a few days because of the, the the gruesome nature of the details. And the reason why I want to lift it up is I'm going to read um, a, an excerpt um, from the book, but I, I, I want to lift it up because I want to hold space mm -hmm. um, for Mary Turner, uh, the sister, you know, who, who died um, or well, I shouldn't say died. I'm sorry, who was murdered um, behind um, just the, the evil of white supremacy. And so I'm going to read an excerpt and I just want to, I just would love for you to hear from you about why you included this um, and, um, and just, uh, yeah. And just why, why you included it and what we can learn um, from this. So I, I and, and I'm reading this um, in, in order to hold space for her and to say her name. And so it's not lost um, on us, the price that has been paid for us to even sit on a podcast like this and talk about, you know, um, white supremacy without real fear mm -hmm. that the same thing that Mary Turner experienced, we, I'd experience. It's a possibility, but it's not something that, you know, that I, mm -hmm. I carry around thinking tomorrow could be my end, you know? Um, so I want to read this. It's, well, I don't actually, I don't know. I'm not going to say the page yeah. number because mm -hmm. the page number I have might be a little different from what our listeners have. Um, but uh, I want to start here. Let's see. Uh, Mary Turner had been vocally protesting the lynching of her husband and her cries for justice made her a target for a white racist lynch mob. When they caught up to her, they tied her ankles and hung her upside down from a small oak tree. Turner was eight months pregnant at the time, but that fact elicited no mercy from the mob, which applied gasoline and oil to her pregnant body. They struck a match and lit it, burning off her clothes. Then while she was still alive, one man took a knife, commonly used for killing hogs, and cut open her womb. 
The premature child fell from Turner's midsection, and according to White, the infant, prematurely born, gave two feeble cries, and then its head was crushed by a member of the mob with his heel. In the aftermath of this event, 500 Black people fled the racial terrorism of lynching in the South, end quote. So I was holding back tears while uh, reading that. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, if you could just speak to us about why you included it, why the detail, um, and yeah, why was it important for us to hear about Mary Turner's gruesome, I gruesome lynching? I reluctantly included that because it is so gruesome. And um, even having written those words on the mm -hmm. page and knowing the story, it still uh, grips me viscerally. And mm -hmm. that's actually why I wanted to include it because many folks resist sort of the mm -hmm. idea of racism as an intellectual project. But when you get down to it and what racism does taken to its sure. heinous and logical conclusion is it kills racism kills. And in the case of Mary Turner, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. you can hardly be human and not be moved and crushed by that. So, um, Obviously, there's the gendered violence of, of where they're enacting this against a woman. What stuck out to me yes. was why they targeted her. Her husband had been lynched and not for anything he had done wrong. Mm -hmm. There was someone else that white folks were mad at. Yes. And then in a white race riot swept up many, many black people in their violence, including Mary Turner's husband. And she was protesting the unjust mm -hmm. extra legal murder of her husband. And that is what made her a target for vigilante vengeance. Right. And then, of course, the manner in which she was killed and the fact that of anyone in society mm -hmm. who we would protect from violence, it would be a mother pregnant with her child, right? But because of racism, uh, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, even obviously there's there's echoes of sort of the pro-life movement now and folks who would oppose abortion and yet historically right. the people in this same theological tradition had seemingly no qualms about murdering this woman and her unborn child uh so mm. it, it speaks to the idea of, mm. of pro-life from womb to tomb and mm. whose life is worthy of protection, protecting and defending, because if you're a person of African descent, it has not historically been the case that even among Christians, your life was valued as much as white people. So there's almost no better case uh, to to illustrate that than than the heartrending story of Mary Turner and her child being murdered. Yes, no, I I agree. I mean, it was um, it was a, a sobering. Is I mean, that's an understatement. Um, you know, account, uh, but I, I, I do believe that it was necessary to see just how, um, how, how, how these supposedly white Christians did not see us as human, did not see Mary Turner as human, mm -hmm. and surely didn't see her precious child, you know, as as human. As you pointed out, they used a a hog knife, you know, which I think also just underscores and highlights, you know, that so the fact that, I think that on lack that, of humanization. On that same tip, one of the there. things that uh, yeah, I think ahead. is crucial mm -hmm. for understanding the nature of racism and white supremacy is the form, the specific form that slavery took in America. 
So I often mm-hmm. don't just say slavery. I'll, I'll, I'll often, at least in the course of the interview, say race-based chattel slavery. And, and those descriptors are vitally important because it differed from yes. indentured servitude. It different, differed even yes. then from slavery as practice in other societies and in the ancient Near East, as the Bible would explicate. And I, and I talk about some of those differences mm-hmm. in the chapter on the Civil War. But what race-based chattel slavery means that, uh, number one, it was based on your skin color or your, your perceived blackness. And I say perceived because there were never very clean lines. Uh, there was always yes. intermarriage and, and interracial uh, mm-hmm. relationships, oh, yeah. uh, oftentimes forced on the, uh, on, in the sense of white plantation owners and their enslaved black women. Uh, so, so it's the whole one drop rule where any amount of blackness is perceived as impure and enough to relegate you to a life of enslavement. Yes. Uh, that's the second factor that this was for life. You were born into slavery and in most cases you died as, as, as an enslaved person, which differed from, from most other forms of unfree labor where mm-hmm. there was at least a possibility of earning your freedom over a period of time or um, having certain rights such as marriage or property ownership rights. None of that was afforded in U.S. race-based uh, chattel slavery. And then the last part, chattel is a legal term that essentially means property. And so what race-based chattel slavery said was uh, people were turned into property. Human beings were considered on the same level as essentially real estate or horses or plows, and therefore uh, it meant a couple of things. One, if it's your property, you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, You can treat people however you want because they're not people in this system, they're property. And so when they get out of line, you can discipline them, quote unquote, as harshly as you want. You can uh, rape them and nobody can uh, mm-hmm. sue you or send you to jail for that. You can sell them because uh, like a, a, a plow or a car or whatever you have, it's yours to sell. Um, and, it, and, it, and it also means that you were considered um, less than human and treated that way. So, so it evinces itself not only in lynchings like Mary Turner, but also in our system of incarceration and how we treat mm. black women and men who oh, yeah. we lock up behind bars for basically misdemeanors or for being poor because they don't have enough money to pay fines. And the way we treat mm-hmm. folks in the prison system uh, is very sure. similar to the way we treat cattle um, or other animals. So it's 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 critical to recognize mm. that this form of slavery reduced the humanity of people. And lastly, I'll say it did so for the sake of a monetary bottom line. It was greed. So we, we definitely have to talk about the oh, role yeah. of money. Uh, oh, yeah. As we talk about not just slavery, but um, uh, the carceral system in general, convict leasing in particular, uh, as well as other forms of economic exploitation like sharecropping and on onward and onward. Yeah, no, I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually I'm glad you brought up money because uh, that's where I was about to go, brother, um, <laughs> to the chapter really um, on the fierce urgency of now. So this is you know we talk oftentimes these you know when we talk about race, it's often in the realm of you know, history, yes, and theory, right? So it's never, not, I shouldn't say never, but rarely. Rarely do we get down to the nitty gritty of, all right, now let's do justice. What does it look like to actually, you know, um, remedy 
you know, of these, uh, uh, these, these harms, right. Um, uh, done, um, and that, well, that continue to be done, uh, by white supremacy, right. And systemic racism and, and mass incarceration, you name it, all, all of the things, um, because it has huge implications, um, not only just here, but also globally. Uh, so in the f- right. fierce urgency of now that chapter, it's the final chapter of the book, I believe, um, before the conclusion, um, a, you talk about some practical, you know, ways forward and some solutions, almost like you're throwing it out for further discussion, it seems. Um, and so one of, I, I kind of want to highlight two of these things. I could talk about all of them, but, but I want to get your thoughts on a, a couple of them. You talked about money. And so, um, I, that of course brings me to, uh, one of the, uh, yes. suggestions, which is reparations, and reparation, you know, the women of mm-hmm. truth table support reparations as we started too. our series last season entitled reparations now. Um, and so I would just like for you to talk to us about um, your own uh, ideology re- re- with regard to um, reparations and what that might look like um, for the church or, you know, even just where you yeah. are with that in your thinking. Maybe you don't have something built out, but I'm just curious about um, what you have to say about that. Well, I was discipled in uh, to 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 think of reparations as absolutely off limits for Christians to think about. It, it I say in the book that the only R word more controversial than, mm. than racism is reparations. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with sort of what white evangelicalism mm, has uh, has thought about in terms of race, and again, this very individualistic idea of life in general would say that it would be fundamentally unjust to require uh, people now to pay for uh, the mistakes <laughs> of the past, supposedly, although I'd argue those mistakes are ongoing. And and that um, an individual who may not have Hello. you know directly right. held slaves or, or participated has no role to play in uh, bringing about a, a just um, society today in terms of race relations. And that's, I think, a very individualistic point of view. But oh, yeah, <laughs> also, um, in, 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 in studying history, you constantly come back to the issue of money when you're talking about race. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason uh, slavery and then later segregation and other forms of economic exploitation persisted is because it was profitable. Uh, so at, 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 at its core, what race-based chattel slavery was, was a system of economic exploitation. And Mm -hmm. in a capitalist system, your goal is to maximize your profit and minimize your loss. And in most Mm -hmm. budgets, your biggest expenditure is for wages and benefits for your employees. So if you want to increase your bottom line, you stop paying your workers. (laughs) And and that's what happened Mm -hmm. during enslavement. And so you have literally centuries of Black people who are building the wealth of our country from draining swamps to building railroads to building colleges and universities. They're literally responsible for building the wealth of this nation, and they're never paid for it. They were given the barest amount of food, clothing, and shelter. They're sold off. Families are separated. They're whipped and abused and raped and lynched and all of these things. And then comes the Civil War, Mm. which, by the way, still is by far the nation's bloodiest war. And that finally brought an end to legalize slavery through the Emancipation Proclamation and then the 13th Amendment. And and so now you say, okay, Black people, you're free, uh, but you don't give them any material compensation. And you say, uh, go ahead and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but they don't even have boots on. And so you move from one form Mm -hmm. of slavery 
to another form. This time people are slaves to, to poverty. And this is happening generation throughout generation today. I live in the Delta. And so my commute to, to school is literally through cotton fields. And this is the place where slaves and sharecroppers uh, once worked not long ago. Yeah. And you still have their descendants here, which make up the population of most of my town. And uh, they're impoverished, not because they're lazy or not intelligent or creative. It's because mm -hmm. they've been mm -hmm. trapped in this system of poverty that dates yes. all the way back to the Civil War and beyond. So in my view, you cannot possibly have a productive conversation about racial justice unless you're talking about money. You got to talk mm. about greed and the way greed lent itself to white supremacy and reinforced racism. And you also got mm. to talk about material, financial resources and remuneration, which as you all say in your wonderful series, it's not, it's not charity, it's justice. This is not yeah. this is not you being nice to, to poor black folks. This is recognizing that the the economic and, and asset inequality that we now see is the result of what the Bible calls unjust scales and that mm -hmm. it is part of our calling yeah. as Christians to make sure that we have balanced scales. So people have equal opportunity at flourishing in life. And that has to include uh, talking about money. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that you mentioned there's the importance of it's about flourishing, right? And how Christians should be the first ones yeah. to be like, yes, I am the man. I am the one, you know, that did this and I am still benefiting from um, the sins my ancestors committed against your ancestors. And so I will gladly give of my resources, which are not mine right. <laughs> in the first That's place, right. uh, and which were ill-gotten, right? That's exactly it. Um, but you know they're not there yet. But we 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 gonna get them there by God's grace. Um, and so I have one more question about uh, your other uh, suggestion and uh, the fierce urgency. Now I want to talk about all of them, but you know we ain't got time for that. <laughs> so <laughs> you talked about learning from the black church. Now when I read this, I was like, wait a minute, are you trying to tell uh, 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 the people? The white people to go to black church. What do you? Because you know, I believe in affinity spaces. They are they 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 are needed. Um, and so, I not no you. shade against the multi ethnic church, but I'm saying that it has its place as well. You know, but ethnic ethnic churches are are needed too, specifically black churches. And so, I'm wondering what you mean when you say learn from the black church, and what are the practical ways that they can uh, uh, that uh, non black I should say non black people can learn from the black church in your in your view. Every, all theology is 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 contextualized. Um, this does not mean that right. that truth is relative. It means that truth is applied in specific ways, in specific times, in specific circumstances. And so, when we look at the plight of people of African descent in America, there was the specific issue of race-based chattel slavery, followed by legalized segregation in the form of Jim Crow, followed by what I would turn term a racialized society in which we currently live. And it was in the midst of these circumstances that uh, historically Black churches developed a theology. And what I find oftentimes is our white brothers and sisters want to talk about solutions, want to talk about integration, want to talk about mm -hmm. equality, but they actually have no idea of the perspective of Black Christians because they haven't learned from Black Christians. Right. Um, so, so you look at your bookshelf and it's all, you know, old dead white guys um, or, or maybe living white guys. 
And uh, that's mm -hmm. about it. You look at our seminary education, our Christian colleges and university, and the preponderance of material is from a Eurocentric or white American perspective. And I want to say mm -hmm. that if that is your frame and you, you see the need for sort of racial justice or, or reconciliation and you want to see progress, but but you haven't you've only accessed people who you've looked like you who come from a similar context, right. then you're going to be at a disadvantage and could even do harm. And so when I say hmm. learn from the black church, I mean, specifically things like, you know, many of uh, conservative white theological traditions start from the perspective of the New Testament and with the resurrection or Paul's epistles and this sort of, they love like the book of Romans and just this um, mm -hmm. propositional oh, yeah. layout of biblical mm -hmm. truth, because that, that follows along with the European enlightenment and the ways that systematic theology works. And that's all good stuff. That's not bad, but, but there's a difference, right? So the black church being in the midst of actual physical suffering and persecution, many church traditions in, in, in the black tradition start from the exodus and start with mm -hmm. ideas of actual physical liberation from enslavement. They start with ideas of Old Testament justice and, and, sure. and corrupt kings and princes and what the role of the people of faith is. And that leads to very different preaching, very different teaching. There's also uh, uh, what Sung Chen Ra has, has really laid out well in his book, Prophetic Lament, the ability of the Black church to weep and to wail. Uh, yes. at, at, at legitimate pain and suffering, to, to express even righteous anger at, at, at mm -hmm. injustice. And, and as a marginalized and oppressed group, that's something that the Black church tradition has always done. And that's something that this sort of uh, sometimes more triumphalistic, uh, predominantly white churches lack <laughs> much experience mm -hmm. right. doing. But then lastly, it, it's not just all, you know, Negro spirituals and moaning and all this stuff. The, the Black life has not just been about suffering. It's actually been about finding joy in the midst of that suffering. And so one thing that the white church can learn from historically Black churches is how to celebrate, how to rejoice mm. with your whole body, uh, whether yes. raised hands or dancing uh, with your whole voice singing that's borderline between shouting and whatnot because you're just so full of the goodness of God. Um, there's so much. Or laying prostrate. Laying prostrate. Amen. Around the church. Amen. Mm -hmm. Because when you actually live oppression and every day your perseverance is, is, is resistance, then mm. you have a reason to shout. You have a reason mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, when, when, the, when, the, when the saints pray, you know, thank you, Lord, for, for waking me up in, in, in rightness of yes. mind and the full uh, faculty mm -hmm. and, and use of my limbs. Like those limbs, everything, yeah. oh, everyday little blessings become almost little miracles. And I yes. think we can learn that not just even from the black church, but from any marginalized, oppressed and persecuted group of Christians, the way we understand scripture, the way we apply it to our everyday circumstances is something that predominantly and historically white churches uh, not only could benefit from like it, it's this is a nice little um, extracurricular or optional add on. It's something that the body needs. Uh, they need oh, to yeah. learn from. Uh, the black church and the persecuted church, if we are going to have a robust understanding of the good news. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's really good, Jamar. Thank you so much for coming to the table to talk to us about the color of compromise, um, the truth about the American ch uh, church's complicity in racism. You know, Jamar, talk to our listeners and tell them 
first of all, where they could buy the book, um, other projects that you have going on, um, how they can pray for you through your um, uh, PhD program, just whatever you have going on. This is your time to and tell them how they can follow you. Great. Um, where they can find you on social media and, or where your next book stop is. Talk to the people and tell them where they can follow your work and pray for you. Yeah, I'd love a follow on social media at Jamar Tisby on both Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram. Also at The Witness BCC and our podcast, Pass the Mic, at underscore Pass the Mic on social media. Also, uh, please visit our website, thewitnessbcc.com. We have literally hundreds of articles on race, religion, and politics, all from a Black Christian perspective. Also want to give a plug for our first national conference that's going to take place October 4th and 5th in Chicago. You will not want to miss this. It's the first time we're doing it. And so as a prayer request, um, we pray that people come. We pray that Black folk would come because we really want this Mm -hmm. to minister to uh, Black people. And we also pray for money, just putting it out there. This is going to take Hmm. literally tens of thousands of dollars to pull off uh, the conference the way we want it to. And so we are praying for God's provision. Um, if, if, if you feel moved, we have a page, uh, a, a link on at the witnessbcc.com where you can donate. We also have PayPal, any sort of electronic, uh, way to give money we have access to, but also, um, you know, for those who are not in position to give financially to, to, to offer up your prayers and to pray that God would do a mighty work through this con- conference and would give us the resources to pull it off. Well, um, other than that, you know, I, am elated at the response mm-hmm. to the book and it's opened up a lot of opportunities, but, uh, I do have a day job and, uh, I am <laughs> trying to write this dissertation. So the ability to have, you know, um, uh, the discipline to focus and study and do the deep, deep research that such a work requires while also paying attention to sort of the mm-hmm. urgent matters of the day and current events that, um, I want to speak into and sort of managing that tension as well. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that um, with our listeners, Jamar. You know, we got you um, lifted up and we just want to thank you for coming and taking a seat at the table with us to talk about the color of compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. And I keep saying the title because I want y'all to buy my brother's book. Okay. <laughs> Move these units. <laughs> I ain't mad at you. Bye. Buy his book, buy his book. Um, And of course, I want to thank you all for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about behind the book, The Color of Compromise, using the hashtag TruceTable. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TruceTable or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. TruceTable also has a Patreon account. Now, so you can send your love offerings to www.patreon.com backslash truth table, or you can also bless us at PayPal, which our PayPal account, which is paypal.me backslash truth table. Truth table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York, and we have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next truth table. Bye, y'all.